We are in uh, getting into the home stretch of the book of Job. We're chapter uh, 38 through half of chapter 40. So we have been going actually fairly quickly. Um, so I encourage you to turn to Job chapter 38. So if you open your Bibles in the middle, you'll want to go to the left, and uh, it's going to come just before the Psalms. So, and uh, it's a long uh, passage, two and a half chapters, so uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're going to read some of the key sections as we go through, but let's begin uh, by praying again. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the book of Job this morning to learn more about how to face God with our own suffering and how to listen to his answer. Lord, we're so often uh, so focused on ourselves that we can't see you. So give us a glimpse of who you are, build our faith, and help us to learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through the story of a man called Job. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, in one of the uh, early passages in the Fellowship of the Ring, um, uh, series uh, the uh, begins where the Hobbit left off with Bilbo, and in one of the very early passages, Gandalf, uh, who's the wizard, is trying to persuade Bilbo, the Hobbit, to leave the One Ring behind. But having fallen under its spell, Bilbo hesitates, and Gandalf pushes, and Bilbo becomes angry with Gandalf. And he cries out, well, if you want my ring yourself, say so, but you won't get it. I won't give my precious away, I tell you. And his hand strays to the hilt of his small sword. And Gandalf's eyes flash. It will be my turn to get angry soon, he said. If you say that again, I shall. And then you will see Gandalf the Grey uncloak. And he takes a step towards the hobbit and seems to grow tall and menacing and his shadow fills the little room. And at this point, Bilbo steps back in fear and he backs up trembling, wondering what's come over the old wizard. And he defends himself, thinking he's about to have the ring stolen from him. And uh, Gandalf says, I am not trying to rob you, but to help you. I wish you would trust me as you used to. See, Bilbo has mistaken Gandalf's aggressive stance as an assertion of power. And in his blindness over the ring, he's made accusations against Gandalf, and he impugns his character and his care and his concern. But the indignation that's coming uh, from Gandalf is coming out of his great love for Bilbo. That's why he's getting uh, angry, because of the foolishness of Bilbo, one, in thinking he could challenge uh, Gandalf, but even more for thinking that he has to, for thinking that he can't trust him. Gandalf's anger at the hobbit's accusation is actually a demonstration of his love. And this gives us insight into God's challenge of Job. Anyway, this incident of Gandalf and Bilbo 
gives us a small glimpse into God and Job. Because it's easy to think that God is angry with Job. But this is actually his challenge to Job as a demonstration of his love. The Lord's comfort isn't the comfort of gentle consolation. It is a fiery comfort of a countercharge. Sometimes the only way to correct a person who believes that nobody cares about them is to become indignant at such an insulting suggestion, causing them to see how misguided that thinking really was. See, Job's never given a direct answer to his questions. He is not told of God's dealings with Satan, uh, nor of God's ultimate purpose in permitting what he does. Instead, he's given the one thing he needs the most, God himself. God himself comes to comfort Job. God himself comes to console Job. God himself comes to reveal his heart for Job. God himself comes to reveal his providence and his sovereignty. And that's the tenderness underlying God's forceful rebuke. He deals with Job as someone who needs his care and attention, as someone, although small and confused, who is deeply loved by the Lord of heaven and earth. God isn't simply overwhelming Job with his power, but inviting him into a bigger, an enlarged perspective of who God is and what God has done. God is displaying before Job a world in which his vast power is exercised with wisdom and care and love and discernment for the good of his creatures. God shows Job the perspective from which he views and governs the world. Now, certainly that doesn't mean that our faith in God is a blind faith. We have good reasons for believing what we do. But those beliefs are going to get banged around by the complications and complexities of life. And sometimes we find it difficult to understand uh, the ways of God in our world and in our life. And there are so many things around us that seem to count against God, uh, that can seem overwhelming at times. We have babies born with illnesses and disabilities, mass shootings in an elementary school, a global pandemic killing thousands. Not exactly what you would expect for, for a world that's under the control of a good and gracious Heavenly Father. Or we could just look at our own lives. We often struggle with circumstances beyond our control. We seek guidance about the future. We get no answer from above and only closed doors here below. Or we struggle because we see people suffer. Often loved ones suffer. The hardships of life can be perplexing. And so the question is often asked, God, are you really there? Or God, do you really care? God's ways are mysterious in our sight. And so we wonder, does he really know what's best? Can he really be trusted? Is he still on my side? Because faith involves risk. And even a healthy faith will come with questions and doubts and struggles in its relationship to God. And I believe the Lord would have it no other way. Because God uses trials to refine our faith, to strengthen our faith. We see that a number of times in the scriptures, very clear, First Peter chapter 1, 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As the great writer Annie Dillard once put it, you do not have to sit outside in the dark. If, however, you want to look at the stars, you will find that darkness is required. A man called Job is sitting in the dark, and it is a very deep darkness. He has been devastated in every area of his life. We see that multiple times throughout this book as we near the end. All the way back in Job 19, he said, Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. Job has trusted God, and now he feels abandoned. Job expected God to act on his behalf, and he made an appeal to him. He called on God to come to him, to make himself known, to vindicate Job's righteousness or to show him where he's gone wrong. But what's happened so far? Nothing. Silence. And that can be the most difficult aspect of suffering. Job wants answers. But in the end, his problem is not intellectual. It's personal. Because he feels let down by someone he trusted. Why, Lord? Why are you treating me this way? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Job had put his trust in a personal God, and that trust involved risk, for it caused him to expect that God would act justly toward him and would respond to him when he called on him, and now he feels abandoned to senseless suffering. And that gets us caught up to our story. Job is right where we left him six chapters ago still waiting for God to respond to his pleas. Will Job ever be delivered from his despair? Will he rise off of the ash heap and resume his life in the world? Who can comfort him? His three friends have tried. They only seem to make things worse. And then, right as we thought God was going to show up, the young brash Elihu entered the picture. And he, he said a few good things, but in his anger, he fails as well. And in the end, Job's consolation relies on something beyond Elihu's grasp. And we shouldn't miss that. If God himself is the ultimate source of Job's problem, then only God himself can be its solution. And now, after 35 chapters of dialogue and debate, of Job's cries for lamentation and calls for litigation, God finally makes his appearance. And that brings us to our text today, starting at Job 38, uh, verse 1, all the way through 40, verse 14. We finally get to hear from God. But when he appears, God does not respond as Job expected. Job wants an explanation for his suffering. He expected God to vindicate him or to condemn him, and God does neither. So let's take a look, starting at verse 38, and the argument of God. 
the argument of God. You see, there's an argument being made against God uh, throughout here with all the friends, um, and that's what God's responding to. And so we need to read the first part of the passage to see what it is. It's actually a very typical argument, not only in ancient times, but even still today. Uh, people look at suffering and say, if there really were an all-powerful and all-good God, he would have never let that happen. And therefore, since the Bible says God is all-powerful and all-good, then the God of the Bible can't exist. That's the objection. It's still around. You still hear it. And this is the one place in the Bible where we get God's answer to that objection. Now, the answer is eloquent. And at first, it's not all that easy to discern. Because right in the beginning of the very first speech to Job, God starts talking about the natural world, the wonders and the immensities and the intricacies of the created order. We start with verse 4, Job 38, 4 through 11. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made its clouds, its garment, and thick darkness, its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. First of all, it's remarkable poetry. It's remarkable verse. We could study it just on the basis of that. If you took a class in English poetry, hopefully parts of Job would show up. I mean, let's look at how God is talking. I mean, he says, he wrapped the vast oceans of the world in a mantle of clouds the way a midwife wraps a baby in swaddling clothes. He says, I've done all this. I picked the stars. There's an interesting spot, kind of ironic, um, where God tells Job, all the way down to verse 35, Job 38, verse 35, can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are? You know, Job, the lightning bolts report to me before they go. They show up and say, here we are before I send them. Do they report to you? Surely you know, because you know so much about how the world ought to work. Now, what's the point? The point actually comes at the very beginning, the first four verses, chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words? without knowledge. Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you will make it, make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. When he says who darkens counsel, counsel is a plan. And what Job has been saying all along is, God, your counsel, your plan, why you're letting these things happen is very dark. It doesn't make sense. And God says, you're darkening my counsel with words without knowledge. So let's take a look at your knowledge for a second. How much do you really know compared to what I know? That's what God is saying. 
Now, if a seven-year-old shows up before a rocket launch and says to the physicist who built the rocket, that thing's never going to get off the ground. It's too big. It's too heavy. I can just tell. You're not going to sit down and enter into a dialogue and say, well, now let me explain propulsion. No, you're going to say, sit down, watch, and see. You're a seven-year-old. You're not yet fully able to understand all this. Now, truth be told, I once asked John Palmay uh, about rocket science, and he said it's very easy, pointy end up, fiery end down. That's all you need to know. So now you know. But what God is telling Job here is you have a major problem. You don't know as much as you think you know. It's a knowledge problem. He says, look around. I made all this. Now, here's the argument. If you have a God who is big enough and powerful enough to get mad at because he's not stopped the suffering then at the same time, you have a God who's big enough and powerful enough to have reasons for why he allows it. Reasons that you couldn't possibly conceive of. You can't have it both ways. You can say there is no God, which means everything's a gamble anyways. Or you can say there is a God. But if you say there is a God, and then you say, but I can't see any reasons why God would let that happen, Does that mean there can't be a reason just because you can't think of it? Of course not. That would be ridiculous. It's like the seven-year-old trying to explain rockets to a rocket scientist. It's actually way worse than that. And yet we do it all the time. We expect God to answer to us. We As C.S. Lewis said, put God in the dock and want to question him. And we come at him with words without knowledge. And what God is saying here is, if you believe in me enough to be mad at me because I haven't stopped the things that caused this suffering, if I'm that big that you're mad at me, then I'm that big to have reasons that you don't understand or that you can't even think of, that you can't even conceive of. You can't question my counsel unless you're in the same ballpark as me when it comes to knowledge. And you're not. By the way, that's actually a powerful philosophical argument in the areas of high-level philosophy in the last 20 years. This argument has been put forth. This very idea that to look at evil and say there can't be a God assumes that because I can't perceive any reasons why God would allow it, therefore, there can't be any reasons. That is what we call a non sequitur. A non sequitur is a conclusion that doesn't follow from the argument. You also hear it referred to as a leap of logic. When I was doing my doctorate, I was told it was the number one reason why doctoral dissertations fail. So I actually got a guy who was a member of our church, was a professor at Patrick Kennedy at the time, to go through my dissertation and make sure there were no leaps of logic. And he came back, he said, you're not as dumb as you think you are. Wasn't sure if that was a compliment or not, but it was good. Um, 
So the argument of God, if you believe in him enough to be mad at him, means he's big enough to have reasons that you don't, won't, and can't understand. And that's a powerful argument. But it's more than a philosophical argument. When Joanne and I were in seminary, we occasionally got to hear from a woman named Elizabeth Gren. You may have heard of her as Elizabeth Elliot. Jim Elliot was her first husband, a famous missionary. Addison Leach was her second husband, a seminary professor. And Lars Gren was her third husband, um, whom she met at the seminary. And she is with the Lord now. But she led a remarkable life. She was a very, what we would call a dominant personality. Um, but her life was filled with suffering. She was an author, uh, well-known, but when we met her, she was late 50s, early 60s. I didn't ask. She had already been widowed twice, and she was a writer, wrote a number of great books about missions, but she also authored a novel. It's called No Graven Image. It's a deeply unpopular novel. It's a fictional work about a woman missionary who's a linguist who gives up her marriage and family, career and money, to move into the rainforest of South America in order to live amongst a primitive remote tribe who had an oral language that was not yet written down. And so she was going to learn the language, write it down, basically create a written language, and then translate the Bible into this new written language. And uh, this is essentially the work of the Wycliffe Bible translators. And so she goes there, and she finds a man who knows three languages. He knows the Indian language, he knows the language of this particular tribe, and he knows Spanish. And so he's the only multilingual person there who can help her. So she goes there, starts working with this man. They spend years and years working on getting this language into written form. Wycliffe Bible translators will tell you it takes about 20 years to do that. But near the end of the book, she accidentally kills this man, her only friend, by giving him a shot of penicillin that she didn't know had gone bad. And the whole tribe turns against her. And they take all of her work and all of her notes, and they throw it into the river. Literally everything she has worked on for years goes downstream. Everything that she's lived for is gone. And her life ends in grief and disappointment, and that's how the novel ends. And when the book came out, Elizabeth Elliot said she got hate mail from Christians all over the world. She got hate mail from ministers. Here's what they said. No way would God let a dedicated servant experience such a thing. No way would God let a dedicated servant go through such a thing. And Elizabeth Elliot responded by saying it was clear that in their theological self-righteousness, they obviously had not read the book of Job. Because that's the point of the book. That dedicated servants can go through stuff like this. That's the point. Secondly, she said what was so weird about all the criticism is that her book wasn't really fiction. It was based on her own life. It was what she experienced herself. 
remember her story. She went to the mission field. There were five missionary couples, and uh, all the five men were killed. She knew that the people criticizing her were wrong. At the end of the book, there's a chilling line. It's had a huge impact. Now, as a pastor, I realize when you're in the midst of suffering, it's too, hold to gra- it's too late to grab hold of a theological principle to hang on to. You need to grab hold of that now before the suffering comes. You need to let it sink in so when that time comes, you'll have an anchor. But here's what she said. This is the character in the book who's a Christian who's now facing the loss of everything. She said, now in the clear light of day, I see that God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. For God is God, and if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will, and that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. Do you hear that? If God was my accomplice, he had betrayed me. But if he was God, he had freed me. You know what an accomplice is? It's an assistant. It's somebody who helps you do something. Now, in Job, in 38, we read uh, verses 31 to 33, he says, Can you bind, God is speaking to Job, can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maserat in their season and can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? He's talking about the stars. It says God picks the constellation. Psalm 147 says God determines the numbers of stars and calls them by name. Do you know how many stars there are? You can't even look at the sun. It's too powerful uh, by itself. A galaxy can have up to a trillion stars. There are a hundred billion galaxies that are visible to our telescopes. And from what we can tell, we only can see a little slice of the universe. And yet Hebrews 1, the Bible says that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Is that the kind of person you ask to be your assistant? Is this the kind of person you treat like an accomplice? But we do. Elizabeth Elliot was saying, your God is too small. Therefore, you don't have any rest. She says, I will find rest in nothing but his will. If you know that his will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond the largest concept of what he's up to, and you can have rest. <clears throat> you can say, I don't know, but he knows, and I'm okay with that. If you say, how dare he do this? What's going on here? How could he let that happen? Your God is too small. You're anxious and upset and have no peace, and you're not going to have any peace until you see the size of God, until you get a God-sized God. That's God's argument. Everything we read in chapter 38 about creation and days and nights and seas and weather and constellations in the heaven is all to give us a God-sized picture of God. And then we go to chapter 39. It's 
It's all about creation and animals and goats and donkeys and the wild ox and ostriches and horses and hawks. And it's all to give us a God-sized picture of God. That's God's argument. But none of that is what Job expects. He has questions. He has demanded answers. And what he got is the silence of God. That's the second point there, the silence of God. And this will be quick. Quick as I define quick. It's as significant to look at what God doesn't say as it is to see what he does say. Here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say anything about what Job wants him to say. Job said all along, I want an explanation. I want to know what your reasons are. You must have some. Tell me. And then God shows up, and he doesn't say a word about him. And the reason that it's so puzzling is because we, as the readers, we know what the reasons are. We read Job 1 and 2 all the way back at the beginning of this series. And that's important. If we didn't have Job 1 and 2, when we got to the end and God didn't answer Job's questions, you'd say, well, you know, it's all just mysterious. But the book of Job tells us the reasons and then shows us that God doesn't tell Job what those reasons are. You remember what the reasons are? God had a dialogue with Satan. And he said, have you seen my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth. And Satan looks at Job and says, does Job serve God for nothing? He says, Job looks like he's serving you and he looks like he's serving others. He's really just serving himself. He's doing good things for you and others, but it's really just for his own benefit. So bring some suffering into his life and this will discredit him and expose him as a fraud. So what does God do? God only allows so much suffering as to completely refute everything that Satan wants. God gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. God allows enough suffering into Job's life to actually accomplish the opposite of what Satan wanted. What's that? Satan wants to discredit Job. But God allows enough suffering into Job's life so that today, as we all know, Job literally has a name that will never die. He is one of the most famous figures in the history of the human race. Millions of people have been helped and inspired by his example of bravery and patience in the midst of suffering. But when God shows up, he doesn't give everybody's looking up. Ah, I need like a dart or an arrow or something. I'm sure there's a metaphor there. We'll have to come back to it. So, God shows up. He doesn't give Job reasons at all. And here's what's important about the silence of God. God can't give Job the reasons. And you say, why not? Well, if God told Job, hey, look, Job, I'm going to bring suffering into your life to turn you into a great man whose name would live forever. If he told Job that, he would never become the great man whose name would live forever. Because it would remove all the questions, all the doubts, all the wondering, all the despair, all the confusion, all the anguish, all the pain. It would remove all the things that God used to make Job a great man. And that means if he didn't tell Job, he's probably not going to tell you either. And can you trust him in that? Now, what are we supposed to learn from all that? 
For that, we have to look at the question of God. The question of God, we jump to chapter 40 and the first 14 verses. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. So he repeats the chapter 38, verse 1. He answers Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me? that you may be in the right. Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Look back at verse 8. That's the key question. Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? The New American Standard Bible translates that as, Will you condemn me that you may be justified? God is telling Job, you're trying to justify yourself. Notice, he's not saying you've sinned and therefore you're suffering. We know that's not the reason for the suffering. What he is saying is this, in your suffering, you're trying to justify yourself. You're saying, this isn't fair, this isn't right, God owes me. Even though Job has been struggling, and we've seen that, and even though he's yelling and he's saying, this isn't right, this isn't fair, guess what? Job never gives up. He never gives in. He just hangs on. He waits. Because Job believes in grace. Think about what makes you a person who thinks that God owes you. That's a person who believes they're saved by works, by what they do. A person who believes if I live a good life, then God owes me. A person who thinks I deserve it. It's a person who doesn't understand the gospel, who doesn't understand grace. The only way you'll ever learn to love God for who he is is God himself, not for the benefits you get from him, is that when suffering comes, you take it, you don't give up, you just hang on, you wait, you get and rely on the grace of God. And you say, Lord, you know, and I don't, and I'm okay with that. That will turn you into a great heart. That will turn you into someone wonderful. God tells Job, in order to justify yourself, you're condemning me. He says, must I be condemned for you to be justified? In that moment, the answer, of course, is no. Job needs to be quiet. Job needs to rest in the will of God. But eventually, the most amazing answer possible is given. The Bible says the answer to this question, must God be condemned for you to be justified, is yes. Unless Christ came to the cross and was condemned, you can't be justified. 
A payment for sin has to be made that would once and for all satisfy God's justice and allow sinners to be forgiven and live at peace with God. The combination of the substitutionary life of Christ in his obedience and the substitutionary work of Christ in his sacrifice means that all who put their trust in him are justified. That is, they are completely and fully forgiven, and able to stand before God as righteous. Do you see what happened here? Jesus Christ, went to the, Jesus Christ went to the cross, died for our sins. That means the infinite justice of God is satisfied, but also the incredible love of God is satisfied at the same time. You know you have a terrible but wonderful God, a God who is so holy and yet so loving, so holy Jesus had to die, and so loving he was willing to die. The cross makes God to be both infinitely holy and infinitely loving at the same time. It's because Jesus Christ bowed his head into the ultimate storm, the whirlwind of divine justice, and was condemned in your place. And then out of the whirlwind of God's holiness, all that comes for you, like Job, is a voice of love. That's your vindication. God knows you and looks to Jesus, and God loves you because he's looked to Jesus. Jesus was condemned that you may be justified. And that was enough for Job. Is it enough for you? You need to think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our inability to take our eyes off ourselves and to look to you. Sometimes we act as though you need to justify yourself to us rather than realizing that you justify us for yourself. Lord, if anyone here this morning is overwhelmed by suffering, by fear or falsehood, by the condemnation of others, or by the feeble attempt to justify themselves, draw them close to you. Build their faith to know that they and we are justified by grace as a gift. And so work in each of our hearts as we learn from a man called Job. Draw us ever closer to the one who in our place condemned he stood, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.